Good morning, everyone. As you can see, this Sunday I got especially dressed up for church, for Easter, or at least in honor of Easter. Here I stand, alone in the room. No one else is here to worship. I'm in an empty sanctuary, an empty sanctuary on the traditionally best attended worship service of the year. In a way, it's a lot like the first Easter. No one was there either. Mary came out early. This service is so early, it's roughly 60 hours before Easter when we record it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But this year, this is the way it is. And it is also the way it was the first time. Maybe, just maybe, this is one of the most authentic Easter worship experiences you'll ever have. The scripture this morning is taken from the Gospel of John. The next to the last chapter, the 20th chapter, the first nine verses. For centuries, the church, in honor of the risen Christ, asked worshipers to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. Wherever you are this morning, just stand to hear the account of the first Easter. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You may be seated. It was Easter, 1986. The Journal of the American Medical Association had printed and published an article entitled On the Physical Death of Jesus. 
Unbeknownst to one another, five doctors whom I knew all sent me copies of that article. It was noteworthy that so prestigious a journal as the Journal of the American Medical Association would decide on the occasion of Easter to print an article not only describing but defending the idea of the crucifixion of Jesus and not only have an article like that but devote nine pages of the journal to it. It was extremely interesting, very detailed, and almost incomprehensibly technical. Let me just read one paragraph. In the setting of the scourging and crucifixion, with associated hypovolemia, hypoxemia, and perhaps an altered coagulable state, friable, non-infective thrombotic vegetations could have formed on the aortic or mitral valve. These then could have dislodged and embolized into the coronary circulation and thereby produced acute transmural myocardial infarction. Thrombotic valvular vegetations have been reported to develop under analogous acute traumatic conditions rupture of the left ventricular free wall may occur. All of that I learned by asking at least a few of those doctors who had sent it to me, means from a lay point of view that the gospel account seems to indicate that Jesus Christ died literally of a broken heart. The article concluded, clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence proves that Jesus Christ really died on the cross. There's some evidence, at least, that the way the gospel writers recorded what happened has been verified by 21st century medical personnel as an accurate description of what would have happened to someone who had gone through such an experience. Some modern scientific verification of the gospel account of the crucifixion by people who couldn't possibly have understood the way I just read it. The authors of the article in the Journal of American Medical Association indicated that they had paid careful attention to a remarkable piece of archaeology, I guess, called the Shroud of Turin. An amazing 14-foot-long piece of linen that has imprinted on it both the back and the front view of a bearded male who was obviously flogged and crucified and stabbed in the side and had had sharp projectiles embedded in his scalp before he died. Exhaustive scientific research has been done on that shroud wherever and however possible because it seemed to be both corroborative evidence of the crucifixion but also of the resurrection. 
The image on the shroud is literally on the shroud, not in it, not through it, but imprinted on its surface as if someone said a burst of atomic energy simply burst from the center of it and imprinted that forever on it. Everything about that cloth is astonishing. The nail wounds are in the wrists, not the palms, the wrists. And it was not known with archaeological proof until 1968 that that is how crucifixion took place. Pollen embedded in the fabric is Palestinian in origin. The weave of the cloth is known to be ancient Middle Eastern weave. The bloodstains on the image on that shroud appear to be real hemoglobin. It's too old to test anymore. But the flow of it is what would be expected by modern medical technology if those wounds had been inflicted the way the scripture says they were and the way no ancient forger could possibly have known. And no one to this very day has a clue how to exactly duplicate the image that is on that shroud, making it very difficult to believe that, a 700, that 700 years ago a forger did know how to do it. But carbon-14 testing seems to some, at least, to have disproved the authenticity of the shroud by saying it has to be dated back no later than the 13th century. Except in 1578, the cathedral where the shroud was stored burned, and the shroud itself was almost destroyed. The fire came right around the fringes on the outside of it and burned them black. Perhaps, some say, carbon-14 testing was distorted by the presence of carbon in the shroud itself. Maybe, just maybe, we have our evidence of the resurrection. And it's evidence we want, isn't it? The Journal of the American Medical Association, no less, gave us evidence that the account of the crucifixion was medically accurate before anyone knew how to describe it medically accurately and indicated that Jesus died of what they called an acute transmural myocardial infarction. Makes it sound more credible, this story. And if the shroud is the shroud of Jesus, well, there we have what someone has called a little time bomb set by God to detonate in the 21st century and say, Jesus Christ has risen. Evidence is what was needed that first Easter, too. The John 20 story is simple and straightforward. Mary walks alone to the tomb on Sunday morning. All she sees is that the stone has been moved and assumes immediately 
the body has been stolen. She runs back to Jerusalem, tells Peter and John, who run out to see what has happened. John gets to the tomb first, runs up to it, leans against the wall, peeks in, and sees that the body is gone. Peter, meanwhile, comes up behind him, running a little slower since he's a little older, and in typical Peter fashion, brushes right past him and goes into the tomb and sees the same thing John saw, only a little closer up. And then John enters all the way into the tomb and sees and believes. Mary sees, John sees, Peter sees, and John sees again. In each of those visions, there is a verb for to see. But three of the four are different from the one another in the original language. There are three words for see here. And in knowing that and knowing their meaning, we may get all the way to Easter. Early. On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She runs immediately to get Peter and John after simply seeing that the stone was moved, assuming a grave robbery. Peter and John run out to see for themselves what had happened. John the younger gets there sooner than Peter the older and bends down and peeks into the tomb and sees not only that the stone is moved and the grave is empty, but the grave clothes are lying there without a body. Now John most often uses that verb, to see, to refer to normal ocular vision. The physical act of seeing things, the act of looking at something and letting your eyes register it and transmit it amazingly to your brain to tell you what it is you are looking at. It's what the man born blind, whom we meet in John chapter 9, did after Jesus put mud and saliva on his eyes and enabled him to see. It's what Mary had done when she first got to the tomb. Apparently she didn't come back till Peter and John had left, and then she saw it again. She even went closer and saw angels and eventually saw Jesus himself, but did not know what she was seeing. She saw it all right with her eyes, but didn't understand it at all. That's what John did when he got there first. He saw, but he didn't go in. Perhaps he didn't want to defile himself by being too near a corpse. Perhaps he did it out of respect for the corpse. Perhaps he didn't go in to defer to Peter, the older and more prominent of the disciples. <coughs> and perhaps John was simply standing outside the tomb in complete shock. At any rate, he bent down, he looked in, and all he did was see what wasn't there. See with the eyes in his head, his mind registering the data and telling his brain 
what he saw. Such seeing is not believing. The evidence, original, untouched, authentic, firsthand, pristine, unaltered evidence only enables seeing, not believing. Sight, not faith. We have to do more than see even the original evidence with just our eyes. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there. Peter arrived. He goes right in, and he sees too. But the way Peter saw what he was looking at, and the way John had already seen what was there, and was probably still seeing from the entrance to the tomb, are different. Peter saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. What Peter saw was that the grave clothes were lying there. Someone said, in their regular folds, as if the body of Jesus had simply evaporated out of them, disappeared from within the shroud, and the shroud simply collapsed on itself in its folds. And as Peter saw that, he contemplated. And he considered, and he wondered to himself what had happened. You'll recognize that that's what this verb to see means when I tell you that in the original, it's theorizo. Peter theorized. He didn't make up theories. He said, this is what my eyes see in front of me. I wonder what what I see means. This was the seeing that John said people did when they saw the miracles of Jesus. They saw more than what happened. This is the seeing of the Samaritan woman who said to Jesus in John's gospel, I see that you are a prophet. This is a seeing that did not just acknowledge what was there before the eyes, but tried to make sense of it. Seeing that did not just admit the stone was moved, the grave was empty, the cloths were lying there in their folds, but seeing that asked, what does what I'm seeing mean? Examination of the evidence aroused interest. Luke tells us, Peter saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. But we must do more than see as Peter saw. We must do more than see with our minds. Finally, the other disciple, which is how John usually refers to himself, who had reached the tomb first, went inside. He saw, different word again, and believed. Now what is it that John did the second time he saw that he hadn't done the first time he saw and that Peter hadn't done yet? This is a new kind of seeing. 
This is the kind of seeing by which John said, Jesus said, I see the Father. This is the kind of seeing Jesus was referring to when he said once, and John recorded this also, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is the kind of seeing of Thomas, who when he saw the wounds, believed and said, my Lord and my God. This is a seeing that does more than just register the data. It's a seeing that goes farther than saying, I wonder what this means. It's seeing that perceives the significance of what has happened. Seeing that is an experience. Seeing that moves from knowledge to faith. Seeing that registers the data and believes. What is very instructive is to realize that for John, about whom we're speaking this morning, who also, in addition to writing the gospel, wrote three epistles, for John, faith is never a noun. It's always a verb. It's not something you have. It's something you do. It's not belief. It's believe. Dr. Raymond Brown put it this way, to believe may be defined in terms of an active commitment to a person, and in particular to Jesus. It involves much more than trust in Jesus or confidence in him. It is an acceptance of Jesus and of what he claims to be and a dedication of one's life to him. To believe what you see is an act of commitment. It was John accepting what he did not fully understand. It is John dedicating his life to one whom he did not presently see. And what made such believing possible? It is not simply the evidence. John saw the evidence when first he arrived at the tomb. It was not that John saw something Peter didn't see. They both saw the same thing. Peter even saw it up close before John did. It was not a sudden realization of what the scriptures were teaching because the last words I read this morning are, <coughs> they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. How is it then that John saw and believed this time? Six times in this gospel, John is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. And we ought to believe that that love was reciprocated that John's love for Jesus was particularly strong too. And there's some definite significance in the fact that the loved disciple whom Jesus loved and who loved Jesus in special ways was the first to see the truth with his heart. An essential ingredient in living faith is living love. Seeing the evidence only with your eyes does not lead to faith. John ran, John stooped, John saw, 
what was not there and did not believe. Such seeing is not believing. Examining the evidence with your mind does not give birth to faith. Peter ran, Peter entered, Peter saw, and Peter wondered. But he did not see and believe. Perceiving the significance with your heart is made possible by a love for Jesus and an awareness of his love for you. John then entered, John again saw, and this time John believed. When he saw with his eyes what his mind had begun to realize, he believed with his heart that Jesus lived. And what is it like not only to celebrate Easter, even today, but to believe it? A homey, but I think profound parable. There was a young woman who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and had been given three months to live. As she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and had him come to her house to discuss certain aspects of her final wishes. She told him which songs she wanted sung at the service, what scriptures she would like read, and what outfit she wanted to be buried in. Everything was in order, and the pastor was preparing to leave when the young woman suddenly remembered something very important to her. There's one more thing, she said excitedly. What's that, came the pastor's reply. This is very important, the young woman continued. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor stood looking at the young woman, not knowing quite what to say. That surprises you, doesn't it? The young woman asked. Well, to be honest, I'm puzzled by the request, said her pastor. The young woman explained, my grandmother once told me this story, and from there on out, I have always done so. I have also always tried to pass along its message to those I love and to those who are in need of encouragement. In all my years of attending socials and dinners, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. It was my favorite part because I knew that something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie, something wonderful with substance. So I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to consider what's with the fork. Then I want you to tell them, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. The pastor's eyes welled up with tears, tears of joy as he hugged the young woman goodbye. He knew this would be one of the last times he would see her before her death, but he also knew that the young woman had a better grasp of heaven than he did. She had a better grasp of what heaven would be like than many people twice her age, with twice as much experience and knowledge. She knew that something better was coming. 
At the funeral, <clears throat> people were walking by the young woman's casket, and they saw the cloak she was wearing and the fork placed in her right hand. Over and over, the pastor heard the question, what's with the fork? And over and over, he smiled. During his message, he told the people of the conversation he had had with the young woman shortly before she died. He told them also about the fork and what it symbolized to her. The pastor told the people how he could not stop thinking about the fork and told them that they probably would not be able to stop thinking about it either. He was right. The best is yet to come. Let's pray. Risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for your resurrection. And while we would love to be together today to sing Christ the Lord is risen today, we trust you can hear us singing and saying it either with our mouths or with our hearts, but hopefully with both. And may we live as if we had a fork in our right hand and die the same way, knowing that the best is yet to come because of what you did on Calvary and in the tomb. Thank you for your great gift, living Lord Jesus Christ. Help us see you with our eyes, with our minds, and with our hearts. In your name we ask it. Amen. And now receive the blessing of God, grace, and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of this earth. Amen.